Isaiah 55, if you have a Bible, open up to it. If you don't, these folks are walking down the aisle, and I crack up because they got a longer walk nowadays. Uh, so just raise your hand, and uh, they'll give you a Bible. We're going to be in Isaiah 55. We've already studied uh, the five stanza, the five three-verse stanzas of Isaiah 53, the servant song, which is a picture of the Messiah. And uh, this morning, uh, we took a look at 54, uh, not last week, but the week before, and this week... We're going to take a look at Isaiah 55. Now, Isaiah 55, interestingly enough, before we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, Isaiah 55 comes on the heels, uh, obviously, of 53 and 54. So the Messiah is presented. We see Jesus very clearly in Isaiah 53. It is one of the most profound messianic uh, passages in the Old Testament. It's just stunning in its entirety. And we've studied it in depth, as you recall. And now, after the Messiah has been presented to Israel through this prophet Isaiah, and and the Israelites are being told they're going to go into exile, but they're talking about once this Messiah comes, the promise to Israel is going to be unbelievable and a great blessing. And the Lord is going to reveal in, in chapter 55 the most significant thing for us as Christians and what sets us apart from the rest of all the world's religions. It's a little thing called truth. And as we've been watching the Supreme Court hearings, no commentary. But we look and we see that there are folks that believe that power, power is the ultimate truth. And there are others who believe that truth is the ultimate power. Those that believe power is the ultimate truth, they'll bend the truth to retain or accomplish power. They'll destroy, they'll do whatever's necessary to retain power. Others will stand by the truth. And the truth is of greatest importance to them. And we're in a culture today, and it was, it was Winston Churchill who said, politics in Europe is different than in America because in Europe they contend all politics is driven by power. In America it's driven by truth. And he says, I fear that America is turning the way of Europe. And as we've witnessed this week, and I I marvel whether you're here or here in relation to what we have seen with the Supreme Court, uh, the Judiciary Committee, with the Senate Judiciary Committee. And, And I've heard this stated, well, that's her truth and that's his truth. Can they both be right and true? We've indoctrinated... To think that truth is subjective. Well, that's her truth. And that's his truth. No, no, no. There's not your truth and your truth. There's truth. It's not subjective to how you feel. Stop relying on your feelings. God gave you a brain. It's not I feel. It's I think. I know. And the idea is to test it. And what you're going to see is God contesting or contending for you to understand the gift you've been given in his word. And he's going to lay something out in Isaiah 55 that I pray will captivate you. It did me. And he wants to emphasize in Isaiah 55 why the scriptures and the faith you have is different than any other faith in the world. And why it's so superior and so significant. And so with that, please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Though I'm going to read all of Isaiah 55, we'll only be teaching a few verses from it. 
Verse 1, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, says the Lord, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. Indeed, I have given him as a witness to the people, a leader and a commander for the people. Surely you shall call a nation you do not know, and nations who do not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace The mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. If you look out to your right, those are all myrtle trees, I'm just saying. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Lord, please bless us in the study of your word. And Holy Spirit, you say that you will lead us into all truth, and we trust you for that. Your word is true. It's inerrant. It's living, it's breathing, it's powerful. And so, God, we ask that you would minister to us today and cause us to come alive to your word. And we thank you, Lord. Bless your people now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat, please. This this passage of Scripture to me is, is one that is very comforting. I love this idea, especially today, and some of you may or may not know, this is the last day of the Feast of Sukkot, which is a Jewish feast. It's the the Feast of Tabernacles. It's one of the three uh, feasts that are commanded. As a matter of fact, we have an Orthodox uh, synagogue uh, just to my left, your right, in the same complex, and they, uh, they celebrate Sukkot. And, and, uh, in John chapter 7, on the last day of the great feast, on the last day like it is today. Today's the last day of this great feast. And in John chapter 7, it was the same thing. It was the last day of the great feast, of this feast, Sukkot. Yeah. And on the last day of the feast today, last day of the feast, John 7, on that great uh, day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, fascinating to me, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so in this Feast of Tabernacles, the last day of the feast, which is today, he says, if anyone thirsts, 
we open up Isaiah 55 after we've been experiencing the Messiah in chapters 53 and 54. We come to the very first portion of Isaiah 55. It says, if anyone who thirsts, I don't know, I thought that was kind of cool. I didn't time it that way, but that's how it works. The last day of the feast in John 7, the last day of the feast here is as we celebrate the last day of the feast. And Isaiah 55 begins with, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. I didn't ask Craig Everett to share what he shared about this idea of chlorinated water that poisons and <laughs> heavenly water that satisfies. We think of the woman at the well, the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus ministered, and he said, the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. She says, I want whatever water that is. And so here we come to this understanding of water. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Uh, the three greatest desires of a human being is air. You can go about three minutes without air, then water, three, three days without water. And then food, about 40 days without food. Water's a tough one. It's one of those things that the majority of our body is water, and, and, and the Lord says, everyone who thirsts comes to the water. Everyone in the room has experienced thirst. Every one of us. And, and the Lord understands the drive that thirst has. I remember watching or reading a book in harm's way, and it was about the sinking of the USS Indianapolis. It was the last large ship to have been sunk by a Japanese torpedo at the close of the war. They had just delivered the atomic bomb and, and to Tinian, and now they were coming back, and a, a Japanese submarine sinks it. And, and command didn't know where the ship was, and they didn't send out rescue vessels, and the folks that went into the water, uh, close to a thousand men entered the water, and by the time the sharks and the thirst had destroyed, there was, I think, a remaining 300 sailors that they, they rescued. And they died of thirst. And, and as you recount some of the survivors, they said they, they go to bed at night with an ice-cold glass of water by their bedside because they never want to experience the thirst that they had, and some of them are still living. Thirst is an amazing driving need of the human body. And God begins by saying, anyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He goes on to say, if you have no money, come by and eat. And he goes through this whole picture of drawing people. But then he says this, listen carefully to me, God says, not me, but God. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your soul delight itself in abundance. But then he says this, incline your ear and come to me. Ear. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. You're willing to go and, and grab food and water, but God says, I want you to incline your ear to me because I'm going to establish something in your life. It's faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing from the word of God. Your soul shall live. He says, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. And I've given him as a witness to the people, a leader, a commander to the people. And then he lays this out. Look at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. You know what that's called? That's called revival. Evan Roberts was used in the, Wales, the Welsh Revival in Wales um, in 1904 to about 1906. He was a 26-year-old man, and he, he, he stuck to this passage of Scripture and just declared it. He wasn't a great preacher nor a biblical scholar, but he simply said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. And he just made that call to every pub and bar and, and mining town, and over 150,000 people converted to Christ in a very short period of time 
time, within less, less than the course of a year. And that revival came over here to California to the Azusa Street Revival, and people came to Christ in droves. And it was just simply declaring, God wants you to return to him. He's the creator. You're the creature. Our relationship is severed, and he wants you to come back. He wants you to forsake your unrighteousness. He knows that there's good. You know that there's bad. You know there's right. You know there's wrong. He wants you to come back to him. And he's merciful. And he says, I will have mercy on him. And I will abundantly pardon you. I will forgive you. Just come on back. I mean, that's a great offer. You violated the God of the universe. You've, you've forsaken him. He's keeping your heart beating and your lungs moving. He's saying, I'm going to give you access back. I want to forgive you. I want to have mercy on you. I want to pardon you. What do you say? Well, I'm not sure. And who is this God? This God is powerful. There's nothing he can't do. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours. My thoughts are not your thoughts. He's big. He's ginormous. He holds the heavens in the span of his hand. That's massive. It's 93 million miles to the the sun. And that's just one star in the mass of the Milky Way. And then the Milky Way is just one of many galaxies. And God holds all of those in the span of his hand from his middle finger to his thumb. He's big. Oh, can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? Well, he's created an earth and hung it on nothing. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. There's nothing God can't do. There's nothing he can't lift. He, many people refer to him as a higher power. Well, you're getting there. He is. Isaiah 55 declares it, but he's got a name and he wants to be your friend and it's Jesus. Amen. I hear that. In Isaiah 55, when you say he's a higher power, God is declaring, that's exactly who I am. I am way bigger than anything you could even fathom. I'm higher than you, not just in power, but in my ways and in my thoughts. I know the beginning from the end and all points in between. I'm not bound by the space-time continuum. I am in eternity. Uh, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts as I read are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. But here's something that's significant. And this is what blows me away. God's words have power. My thoughts Before the word was even on your lips, I I had already accomplished it. You read Genesis, and I'm I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but but, but to the best of my ability, I can pronounce the original Hebrew wording in Genesis when he said, Yahior wah Yahior, light be. Light was. I have been trying to do that with an in and out burger for a long time, like... (laughs) Never. And in the, in, in the expanse of a void where there was nothing, he says, light be. And light was. Light's a substance. Darkness is the absence of light. It's, it's nothing in and of itself. It's just the absence of something. And in this, when he says, light be, light was, that's the power of his word. I, we don't possess that. He says, my thoughts are even more profound than yours. My word goes out from my mouth. It does not return to me void or empty. It accomplishes what I desire it to do. 
And God proves this point. He proves this point to any of you who are doubting it. And he does it in such a way that I don't think people with their cup of tea and their Bible study in the morning or maybe in your your comparative religion class in your community college would even take a moment to, to process and fathom. But he did it for a very distinct reason. He wants to prove a point. He does something fairly clever here in Isaiah 55. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by it. He slips a little science lesson in the midst of this passage of scripture. Back in the days when this was written, many people worship water, sky, fire, earth, fertility. They, they, they worship the elements. But God says, I'm going to help you understand this world a little bit better. And he gives them a science lesson in Isaiah 55.10. Take a look. It's fascinating. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. He lays this out. He does something in Isaiah 55.10 that Isaac Newton needed to wait until the 1600s to do. He clearly described the law of conservation that Isaac Newton described in the 1600s and became very famous for. Isaac Newton was a believer. It basically says this idea, as such as the water cycle that we see in Isaiah 55.10, it's conserved over time. It can be neither created nor destroyed, but can change forms such as water, vapor, ice, right? In the late 1700s, Antoine, I've been practicing this, Lavoisier, did I do all right? Antoine Lavoisier. J'entends c'est l'appelé. He discussed the principles of evaporation. And it was his landmark book, The Elements of Chemistry. And he came up with this idea of evaporation. And you're going to see it momentarily. And then in the night, that was 1700s. In the 1930s, this scientist named Roy Clapham came up with a term ecosystem, which all of our kids learn about. And he showed how the earth's recycling of water was important to the life of plants. And all three of these scientific principles, all three of these scientific principles are laid out in a single declaration in Isaiah 55.10. The rain comes down to water the ground, but it doesn't disappear. It's not destroyed. It is conserved. Yes? The water evaporates, goes back up into the atmosphere and comes down as rain again. The rain serves a purpose. It causes plants to grow. It's a vital part of our ecosystem. Seed to the sower, right? It's all listed here. No other ancient writing would have ever have told of something this significant. But God did. He laid it out. Here's the water cycle. And all of the statements in Isaiah 55.10 are in agreement with this this scientific concept that you see with these, these three folks. Evaporation from the lakes and ocean, streams, condensation, transpiration from plants, groundwater, surface runoff. It's fascinating. Winter, spring, summer, fall, uh, the rains come in, and we can watch it here because we're surrounded by these mountains. They come in, the, the winds come in from the ocean, the clouds come in, they start to rise in elevation, they drop their precipitation, and then it freezes, turns into snow, so it, it covers our mountains, and the higher the elevation, so it's cooler, so it it retains it, kind of like a, a cooler, an a ice chest. 
And then the, the, the spring comes in the summer and it begins to melt. And so we have a constant water to water our crops in the valley. And we produce these plants in this ecosystem and, and as the plants retain it, and some of it gets evaporated, and it just creates this continual picture, and we eat. And then we have artesian wells as they begin to, to run off, and you have rivers and streams, and we're able to capture that. This is Isaiah 55.10. We look at it, and we go, well, that's, that, everyone knows that. They didn't know this back then. I mean, this is all the concepts that, that, that are listed here. It is, it's fascinating, this, this whole idea... God would place this little scientific gem, this, this idea of evaporation and an ecosystem, right here in the middle of the passage. Law of conservation of mass, Lavoisier, chanson. <laughs> you, 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 your coal is completely burned, but you have 100 grams of weight of the jar and its contents remains the same. Mass is conserved because it's a chemical reaction. Matter is neither created nor destroyed. It is transformed into something else. It's all here in Isaiah 55.10. Why would God do this? The answer is simple. Why would God do this? Very simple answer. He wants you to know you can trust the book you hold in your hand. 66 books of the Bible. And I remember as a young Christian, I, I, I was so enamored with this Bible, and I'm reading it on the bus going to school. I was going to a community college, and I'm reading this thing, and I'm enamored with it. And I'm reading through John, because somebody said you're a new Christian. Read through John. I'm reading it. A guy next to me on the bus goes, why are you reading that trash? I said, I'm sorry? Why are you reading that? It's full of contradictions. It's a waste of your time. I go, really? He goes, yeah, give me it. He was an older guy. Get, I give him, I reluctantly hand him the Bible, and he turns to a passage, he goes, read it. And I read it, and he goes, all right. And he turns to another passage, he goes, read that. And I read it, he goes, contradiction. I go, whoa, yeah. He goes, here's another one. Turns here, read it. Okay, turns to another, read it. I read it. Contradiction. Whoa, that's heavy. He did it like five or six times. He goes, and he throws it on the ground, he goes, don't waste your time. I was reeling. I thought, as the bus continued to drive, and he got off. And the minute he got off the bus, it was like a relief. <laughs> I don't know why. And at the moment, I thought, can I not trust this thing? But here's what's fascinating. He was miserable. And the minute I opened that Bible, not knowing it from cover to cover... And doing my best to come to an understanding of it, everything I read changed me and made me feel happier. So I thought, he looked miserable, I was happy, he left, I'm going to get back into this thing. (laughs) And as I began to read, and I became a scholar of it, and I started to catch the contradiction passages that he had been trying to dazzle me with, I started to learn a little thing called context, And I realized that guy didn't know his elbow from his earlobe. And if I meet him on a bus today, I am going to mop the floor with him. His word is true. Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God gave us this gem in Isaiah 55.10 so that we would, we would believe his word. The Bible's not 
a scientific book, but it has scientific truths in it. You go, well, you can't prove the Bible scientifically. No, you can't. You don't use a scientific method for historical references. You use cross-referencing. I was a history major. You look for original manuscripts. You look for cross-referencing. You look for those things. There isn't a work of antiquity that has more cross-references and original sources, not, not to the time where they were living, but cross-referencing and looking for sources, than the Bible. There isn't an ancient work of antiquity that has more. And as a matter of fact, Isaiah 55 that we're reading right now, you go, oh, that was written thousands of years ago. We don't know if it's accurate. So in the, in the 40s, they come across the, the caves in Qumran. A, a shepherd boy throws a rock in to get a goat out of the cave. Here's a clash of some pottery. Walks in and finds these 10,000-year-old scrolls, unrolls them. And Isaiah 55 is verbatim what you're reading right now. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. Not the scrolls, but your attitude. It's It's legit. And you read these things and you see these, these scientific principles. And, and I'm not asking you to, listen, if you're taking your community college comparative religion class and, and, and they're indoctrinating you to say that this is a waste of time and it's a lie, would you do me a favor? Because one of the verses that stuck with me after that guy on the bus was where it says in Timothy, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Study. If they're telling you it is worth, worthless, would you do me a favor and test their statement to see if it's true? Otherwise, you're not being educated, you're being indoctrinated. Read. Study. And I can tell you it's a pretty amazing book. I'd, I'd be happy to meet with your professor, but I'm not going to do your work for you. I, I got prepared. I studied to show myself approved. I'm doing the best I can. You see, the interesting thing about the Bible is everything you need in life is in the Bible. You go, oh, it's simplistic. Yeah, it is. Let's move on. <laughs> everything you could need to know or be blessed is found in the Bible. Everything you want to know about God, found in the Bible. Right there in the 66 books of the Bible. And all you need to do is read the Bible. Not just the Bible, but if if you're on a desert island, you get the Bible. It's pretty cool. You'll be fine. Oh, I don't buy it. Okay, thank you. I set you up. Here we go. Well, before I take you to that, I'm going to show you this. Um, Anyone who who knows me pretty well, knows that I'm enamored with a location on the earth that someday I'm going to go visit. And it's really hard to get to. And trust me, it doesn't require a lot of physical effort. It's not like Everest or anything like that. <laughs> I have no desire, as you can see. Um, <laughs> ever since I've been a child, I've, I've dreamed of going to this place. As a matter of fact, I subscribe to the uh, newspaper of this location. I, I purchase products from this location. Uh, this morning in my coffee, I used some honey from this location. It, it's, it's awesome. And it, and it all came about, my dad was a naval officer. Uh, he would have me watch these old movies, and one in particular was called Mutiny on the Bounty. It was about Her Majesty's ship, HMS Bounty, uh, Captain William Bly. And uh, it was, it's a true story. 
And the story with Captain William Bly is he was secured by the British Navy to go find a source of vitamin C because scurvy was destroying the sailors in the British Navy. And they knew that the breadfruit from Tahiti was, was high in vitamin C and it was going to cure the scurvy. And they had assigned Captain Bly to travel the great distance to go to Tahiti to keep the breadfruit alive and then set it up in different locations throughout the world so that when the ships would come into port, they'd be able to load up on the breadfruit and it would save the lives of the sailors as they would circumnavigate the world, right? Tracking me? Well, one of the assistants, uh, one of the under officers, uh, his name was Fletcher Christian. And Fletcher Christian... Uh, was serving Captain Bly as an under-officer. And they get to Tahiti, and Fletcher Christian is enamored with the Tahitian women uh, and the lack of clothing that they were wearing. And they had been at sea a long time, and he liked to drink, and they found alcohol there, and they started to enjoy themselves. They had liberty. And uh, Fletcher decided, I, I like Tahiti, and I don't want to leave. And they get back on the ship to continue their, their journey and their voyage and their responsibilities. And Fletcher Christian convinces a portion of the crew to mutiny against Bly. And so what they do, this fellow is uh, one of the guys that mutinied with Fletcher Christian. He was just a sailor on board the HMS Bounty. His name's John Adams. It's actually James Alexander. But he changed his name to John Adams. And he joined Fletcher Christian to uh, do a mutiny. This is Captain Bly, and people see him in the movies, and they always depict him as this evil guy. He was an amazing captain, a phenomenal captain. Fletcher Christian, because his, his brother was a writer, has been glorified in Hollywood. Fletcher Christian was a joke. Captain Bly, stud. I'll prove it to you. Captain Bly was taken, uh, they, they, they took the, Fletcher Christian took the ship over, put Captain Bly and the majority of the crew in this little tiny boat packed them in, and they just set them adrift, and the remaining folks barely had enough to run the vessel, the HMS Bounty, uh, and they were struggling. Captain Bly gets in this little boat filled to the brim with the, the crew that wanted to remain with him, and they cast them off. Well, the red, the red that you see is the original journey of the HMS Bounty, and it comes there, as you can see, to Tahiti, they get the breadfruit, but at to Tofua... Uh, they didn't want to eat any more tofu, and no, I'm kidding. Uh, at, at Tofua, they, they split, and the mutiny occurs, and the yellow is the HMS Bounty with the mutinous crew, and you can see they barely know how to sail. They're going all over the place, right? The green is Captain Bly in his skiff, and it's one of the greatest feats in naval history. He traveled 3,000 miles with a sextant in a boat with one sail, and his entire crew made it back safely to England. Fletcher Christian and the remainder of the HMS Bounty, they finally couldn't, they, they went uh, back to Tahiti, and they went to Dubai and Tahiti, and they went to Tofua, and they decided, you know what, they're going to find us here, the, the islands are on the charts, we got to find a place. So they travel out into the middle of nowhere to this place called Pitcairn Island. This is where I want to visit. And here it is. It is, it is a, it, it's a, it's, it's a gnat on the butt of an elephant. It is out in the middle of nowhere. If you don't know where it is, it's, it's a thousand miles from Tahiti and 3,000 miles from New Zealand. So if you want to get your mail or anything shipped, the honey that I have from Pitcairn Island they ship it to New Zealand. It takes four months to get honey. It's on the queen's table. It's the most delicious honey you can imagine. You can't afford it, but it's really delicious. And that's Pitcairn Island. 
Now, I share this with you because when Fletcher Christian got there, uh, he scuttled the ship. And they just, they just burnt it to the ground. And actually, you can find on Pitcairn Island, you can, you can find the anchor of the HMS Bounty. It's on Adamstown, which is the only town on the island. And if you blink, you'll miss it. And there's probably 50 people that live on the island. When they got there and they scuttled the ship, there was no way to leave the island. And they had actually gone to Tahiti and to, to Fua, and they picked up some natives, and they got some women. So had some men that they were going to use to work the island, and, and they themselves had the women, and they get there, and the guys are like, these sailors are scrawny, and they don't tan very well, and we can take them. And so war ensued, and they all start killing each other, and there's not a lot of places to hide on the island. And, and they, they, were, they ran out of alcohol, and they were drinking and partying, and, they, you know, and finally everyone's dying, and everyone's drinking, and everyone's sick of just being there. And there's two sailors that are living after the original crew. One is dying of tuberculosis and the other. So they go and they try to find sanctuary. And they're digging through a dead sailor's locker and they come across, they come across a Bible. And John Adams or James Alexander, John Adams opens it up and says, and he had, he had a, he had a, he had a terrible education. He barely knew how to read. And he starts reading this thing. And it starts changing his life, kind of like when I was on the bus reading it. Something special about this book. And he starts to lead his friend, and the two of them start going through it, and it's, it's affecting their lives. And they go to the women and to the children that they had, they had, they had birthed and, and, and you know, fathered and all over the island, and the remaining men that they were there, and they just started to share with them what they'd learned. They, they put together Sunday schools, and they established laws based in Leviticus and, and, and all the Levitical laws. And they just start, hey, if we apply this, we're going to survive here. And they turn the whole island into this amazing industry of beekeeping. And they, 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 they don't have a police force. They don't need, they, they, nobody drinks anymore. They've abandoned alcohol. And in 1820, the, the USS uh, Topaz shows up. And it's a, a whaling vessel. And they're amazed at this Shangri-La, this beautiful town. No police. They get along swimmingly. And he goes, it wasn't always like this. And he holds it up and he says, this book changed it all. This book. I, I can't wait. And, and, and they actually, they were so literal because of their education. They didn't know what the Lord's Day was. They didn't know that it was on a Sunday. They didn't know how the Jewish calendar operated. They didn't have a lot of stuff. So when they read that, that they worshiped on the Sabbath, all of them just started worshiping on the Sabbath. And then the scripture says it's sundown here. Sun. Okay, so when they showed up, they were, they were Sabbatarians. And they turned, they go, well, I guess we're Adventists. And so the whole island is Seventh-day Adventists. One other thing, and then I'll, I'll move through this for you, but there was a newsman in 1945 that was attached to the American forces in Okinawa. And anyone that's been in the military, either in the Marines or the Navy, you know where Okinawa is. You've probably served there. Even Air Force has served in Okinawa. It used to be part of Japan, and in 1945, after we defeated the Japanese, they had to go and evaluate and assess the island. So this newsman, Clarence Hall, travels in a Jeep with a, a cameraman, and they visit various, uh, some of these various communities on the island of Okinawa, and they get, and they just see these cesspool of villages that had just been decimated by the Japanese, and they were all poor, and they had seen village after village after village, and it was just despairing and miserable, and they get to one village that stands out like a diamond in a dung heap, and they're stunned, and so uh, Clarence Hall and, and the 
the cameraman get out and the Jeep driver. And they were told by the villagers that an American missionary had come some 30 years ago to Okinawa. And, and the missionary came to that village and he led two elderly townspeople to Christ. And when he left, he gave them a Japanese Bible. And then war broke out. They had to get out. And these two Japanese men held on to it and began to read it. These new believers studied the scriptures, started leading their fellow villagers to, to Christ. And the driver was amazed at the difference between this village and the others around it. He remarked, so this is what comes out of only one Bible and a couple of old guys who wanted to live like Jesus. I share this with you because you have the story of the mutiny on the bounty. And you, 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 see, you see the significance of the word of God. And, and this is what I want to tell you. The Bible is not a dead letter book. You have a lot of religious books. You have the Quran. You've got the Apocryphas. You've got all kinds of religious books. The Bible is not a dead letter book. It's living. It's breathing. It's alive. It's powerful. It's transforming. And this is important to remember. The Bible doesn't need a church or a preacher to give it power. You can take the Bible and put it in the mouth of a dog and walk it up the aisle and it could do a better job than me. If all you do is read it. The way that you you defend a lion, real simple. Just let it out of the cage. I don't need to defend it. It'll do it on its own. Just read it. A person whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that their life usually isn't. God said, my word goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me void or empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. But there's a problem here. The Bible's a great book, no doubt. A lot of you know it. It's filled with powerful stories, undeniable historical facts. Archaeologists have found locations they never thought existed, and they just dug where the Bible said to dig. Boom. It's loaded with encouraging promises. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you hope and a future. Trust in the Lord. Lean not on your own understanding and all your ways. Promise after promise. Has commands. Thou shall not. Thou shall not. On how we should live our life. Do not be unequally yoked. Don't be drunk with wine, but of the Holy Spirit. There are plenty of religious books, just like the Bible, plenty of religious books in all the world's religions. There's plenty of them. And there's many good things inside them, just like the Bible has. There's rules and regulations. Don't do this, do this. Don't drink, smoke, chew, hang around with those who do. There's all kinds of rules. Every, every religion has them. Christianity is different than all these other world religions because of one significant truth. One. And it's found in Isaiah 55. God knew that a book filled with historical accuracy and scientific truth and helpful rules would never be enough to change our lives. Because if it were, any religious book will do. Even a book filled with the power to reach into our lives and convict us of sin and tell us all we need to know about him would still never be quite enough. Her truth and his truth. And some people all of a sudden you're confronted with the truth. 
and you're convicted. Maybe you're sorry you got caught, but either way you're sorry and something has affected you. Religious books can do that. The law can do that. The Bible has something more than all of that. Because if that's all we had, it, 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 would be, it would be like every other book. In Isaiah 55, again, and this is what I close with, Isaiah 55 points this out. The Bible was never just about rules and regulation. If it was, every religion in the world would work. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those who do. I'm special. There's one significant truth. That's why the Bible has never been just about rules and regulation. All the way through the Old Testament, we've watched it, 53, 54, boom, boom, boom. Constant drumbeat of statements. Prophecies declaring someday somebody, boom, 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 would come and heal the brokenness of our lives. Someday. Intriguing way, Isaiah 55, right there in verse 10. He says, my word, my word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me void, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. My word. He didn't say my book, my religious manuscript. He didn't say my will and my way and my law. No, he said my word, my word. My word, today's the last feast of Sukkot, the feast of tabernacles. Emmanuel, God with us, he tabernacled with us. How did he do that? God says, my word, my word. This is what separates Christianity from every religion in the world. We have a Messiah who said this, in the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word that God sent was His Son. We have Jesus. The word was Jesus. Jesus didn't return to the Father empty. Remember? My word that goes out from my mouth will not return to me void or empty. Jesus did not return to the Father empty, but he accomplished everything the Father sent him to do. He stepped out of heaven. He lived among us and taught and healed and prayed. He prayed with us. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the grave and conquered death so that we would know the grave could no longer hold us. And without that truth, Christianity has nothing to offer. We're just another religion. Without Jesus, our Bible's just another empty book. But with Jesus, the word is alive. 
and I will prove it to you. My word does not go forth from my mouth, or excuse me, my word that goes out of my mouth will not return to me void or empty. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son the word, that whosoever believeth in him, the word should not perish, but have everlasting life. Matthew one twenty one. the angel told Mary, you are to give him the name Jesus, meaning Savior, because he will save their people from their sins. You see, a Savior, the Word, makes all the difference because He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Every religion in the world is rules and regulations trying to earn favor with God. And Christianity is a Savior that cleansed us of all of our sins and forgave us. So we, we do the right thing because we're saved. We don't do this to be saved. Ours isn't out of obligation. Ours is out of adoration. Over here, we're trying to hit a bullseye we'll never hit in a million years. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Good luck trying to be like him. But over here, he leaves heaven to tabernacle with us, Sukkot. And he takes the bullseye by his death on the cross and moves the bullseye to where our arrow is. He says, you're forgiven. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift. And I did it. The word did it. That makes our religion alive because our Savior, the tomb is empty. And Jesus saved us. We weren't saved by anything we did. We were saved by what he did. 